eventually get to be at this campus, but I'm very happily here again shortly after the last time I was here. Yes. I'm one of the staff members at the Gospel Tab, and I'm very excited to be with you on one of our Advent Sundays. We are looking forward to celebrating Christmas together, and last week we talked about some of the covenants, the Noahic covenants, and in light of the Noahic covenant, how Jesus brought a new covenant that was better, and his covenant secures hope in all the places where we need it. This week, we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, or the promises and um, the agreement that God made with Abraham, and also talking about the new covenant in Jesus, with undertones of peace. So we're bringing a lot of things together, but our Advent theme this week is peace. So when we talk about peace, there might be a few different things that come to mind. Um, it's generally the sense of, oh, there's no conflict, right? Or my mind is at peace, I'm at rest, I feel secure. Um, this is something that I strive for. I think we all strive to achieve peace in our lives, right? And one of the most clear ways that I can describe my peace process <laughs> is to describe what it's like when I'm alone at night. So when I had graduated from college, um, my parents had a home out in the country that they had bought while I was in college. So it's kind of new to me. It's out in the country. I'm spending the night alone out there because my parents went on a trip. And I was scared. I had been living in Chicago for a few years, and that felt way safer than the country. <laughs> because it's kind of like, if you've seen that movie, The Princess Bride, there's a bad guy, and he's like, okay, princess, well, there's nobody around to hear you scream. And that's, that's how I felt about the country. <laughs> so as I'm locking up the house at night, I'm double-checking, okay, top door's locked, basement door's locked, top door's locked, basement door's locked, I'm good. I go to sleep in peace, I wake up in the morning, I open the front door, and guess what? what? I left my keys in the front door. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, this is such a picture of what it is when we seek to make our own peace. Mm, wow. It really doesn't work. Okay? And um, I, I, I was into the, um, the Bible Project. It's such a great breakdown of biblical themes and ideas and teachings. So we're going to hone in on the Advent series that the Bible Project gives. They have a video on peace. We're going to just watch a minute of it and I'll have to cut it short. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or time peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erein. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom So 
stop it there because I thought that picture of the wall was so profound in the ways that this wholeness of God's shalom or his peace is like this wall that is secure. And as we go through our lives in these places where we seek peace outside of God, that wall kind of breaks down a little bit. Um, that's just how it is. Peace only comes from God. Okay. Um, so to illustrate some of these points and also look at the Old and the New Covenant, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 to start, verses 1 through 7. And this is where Abram gets introduced. And by the way, his name in chapter 12 is Abram. But I'm going to mostly call him Abraham because it's too hard to switch back and forth because <laughs> later his name gets changed to Abraham. Okay. So. It's on the screen. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot is his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay, so this is setting the scenario for how God is going to call his people forth out of the earth. To this point, there is no particular group of people that's associated with God, and it's all starting right here with Abraham and this first promise. And the, these promises that God is making in this section um, eventually turn into a covenant, which we'll look at later. But this is the first time he makes these promises. In verses 2 through 3, he says, I promise I will make you a great nation. And he said, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And then in verse 7, he said, I will give you all this land. Now, there's a couple things to note. One, you see that Abraham is 75 when this happens. That's pretty old, right? But contextually, it wasn't quite that old. Because if you were here last week, we looked at Noah and after the flood. At that time, people were living hundreds of years. And God said, you know what? People are too evil to live that long. I'm going to limit their days to 120 years. Okay? And so people gradually started living less long. So if you read through Genesis, you'll see that um, Abraham actually lives to be like 170, something like that. Okay, So he's old, but he's not super old. It's just kind of hard for us to kind of gauge quite how old 75 is if you're going to live to be 130 or 170. Okay, So he's 75. His wife Sarah is 65 at this time, and they have no children. All right? Um, probably they would have had children by this time, but it seems like there might be some type of problem. They have no children. And they're this age. They're mature adults. Um, there's another thing here. There's some obstacles to these promises that God made. God said, I'll make lots of people from you, and I'll give you this land. Some of the obstacles to these promises or the peace that Abraham might be looking for in God's fulfillment of these promises is that I'm older and I have no kids. So I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. Okay, maybe it'll happen. 
Um, but also, God says, I'm going to give you this other land. Leave your family. So he's leaving the security of his relationships and his background and his homeland and the people that would have been a support and a security to him to go be a stranger in some other land where he's vulnerable, right? Um, so not necessarily a situation that produces a lot of peace in your heart, but he, he's seen God. He says God appeared to him. So it's like, okay, I'm going to obey. And he obeys, so he moves, and he's out in this land, and God comes to him again in Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 through 7, and he's making this promise again. And this time when he appears to him, it's the third time. Okay, he continues to reiterate these promises to him, but years are going by, and these promises haven't been fulfilled. And so in chapter 15, verses 4 through 7, it says this, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is Abraham, this man who, this man shall not be your heir. Um, that's talking about somebody who's like a servant to Abraham. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay. So God's making this promise again that he had originally made in, in chapter 12. And he's also expanding some of the description. Because in chapter 12, he just said, I'm going to make a nation of you. Now he's saying, this nation's going to be so big, you can't even number it. Like the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky. It's even bigger. It's an even bigger promise than I said before. Okay, it's even better. And also he had, along the way, sown in like eternity into this promise. Because he said, your people will possess this land forever. So as Abraham's waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, God keeps making it bigger and expanding it, but he's still waiting. And so he says to God in verse 8, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? Because you keep telling me this and nothing is changing, right? And so God enters into a covenant with him. And in chapter 15, verses 9 through 10 and 17 through 18, we see what that covenant Ceremony looks like. Not quite like the marriage covenant ceremony that we're used to. A little different. This is how it looked. <laughs> he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, so this is a, a, like a solemn promise that God is making. It's an agreement. And, and at this point, we don't see Abraham's side of this covenant, but later on, God expands his promise again and says, your sign of this covenant is circumcision. Which seems weird, right? I've always been like, just why? <laughs> but it was so interesting as I was reading it, saying, because this was a symbol that directly would bring to mind your offspring are from me. This is the symbol of this promise that your offspring are a blessing from the Lord. And I thought, oh, that actually makes sense. <laughs> okay, so um, 
this is where this covenant with Abraham actually takes this, um, like, I don't know what you, official form, because God has been making these promises, okay? But if shalom or peace is wholeness, like that stone wall that we were picturing earlier, and God's revealed plan lacks wholeness, where do we find peace? Right? Like God is saying the what of what is about to happen, the what of what Abraham can expect, but not the how at all, right? And I think oftentimes I get trapped in this place where it's like, God, I have expectation of good things from you, but like a how, you know? And it's just not happening. And the wait is really long, you know? And so Abraham and Sarah kind of get their heads together and like, you know what, we're going to help God's promises along. <laughs> Sometimes we do that too, right? And so Sarah says in chapter 16, hey, Abraham, guess what? I'm clearly not having kids at this point. She's like, when she says this to him, she's like 75. She says, I'm clearly not having kids. Why don't you take my servant and marry her, have kids through her, and that's how this promise is going to get fulfilled, right? And Abraham agrees. He's like, okay, I'm going to partner with you. We are going to make this promise happen. And guess what? Hagar, the servant, gets with Abraham, and they have a baby. And, and wait, she conceives. And when she realizes she's pregnant, then she despises Sarah. And then Sarah treats Hagar terribly. There's this whole injustice scenario happening. It's really ugly. God brings some beautiful things into this. Like, he's not missing any of this injustice. But it's certainly not peace. Right? Because that's what happens when we try to fulfill God's promises in our own way. Not peace. So then Ishmael's born. That's Hagar's son. Hagar and Abraham's son. Ishmael is born. Abraham's 86 now. And I think he thinks this is the son of the promise. This is the one God promised me. But 13 years go by in the biblical account. And it sounds like 13 years of silence. Where he's not hearing from God on these promises at all. And then God re-enters the scene in Genesis with, with Abraham on this point. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 8. I don't think I have a slide for that. But basically what happens is God reiterates the promise of the covenant for the fourth time. I'm going to make you a great nation. Blessings to all people through you. You're going to have this land. And Abraham's now 99 years old. And he's like, okay, God. <laughs> he's kind of laughing about it. And God says, and by the way, Ishmael isn't the one. That was, that was your effort. That's not me. And Sarah's going to have the son of the promise. And, and Abraham laughs. He's like, this is crazy because she's 89. And at this point, it seems like she's old enough. Because chapter 18 tells us the way of women has ceased. So we can <laughs> presume that means... She's in menopause, okay? So he's like, okay, God, you say it. God repeated it three times, I promise. Sarah will have a son. His name will be named Isaac, and it's going to happen in about one year. Three times. Well, shortly after this encounter, guess what happens? Abraham and Sarah travel to a new place. Now, this has happened before. It's not the first time this happened, but they travel to a new place, and even at this age, Sarah's apparently very beautiful. And Abraham is afraid that he's going to get killed if people realize she's his wife because they're going to want to take her. 
He's like, I'm going to get killed. So you tell everybody that you're my sister. And then I'll be okay. Right? So they come to this place named Gerar. This is in Genesis chapter 20. And King Abimelech, King Abimelech, he sees Sarah and he's like, yeah, she's beautiful. And so, oh, this is my sister. Go ahead and take her. Wild, right? This is not sowing peace in your marriage, I can tell you that. <laughs> so, 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 King Abimelech takes her into his harem. And let me tell you this right now. We don't know exactly when this happened, but he has received this promise that he's about to have a baby. Right now, they're putting at risk the integrity of God's promises. Because if Abimelech sleeps with her and she has this baby, wow. how are you going to know whose it is? Right? But God takes his promises seriously, and he protects the integrity of his promises. Amen. And so in Genesis chapter 20, uh, verses 3 through 4, it says this. I got the tiny print Bible. <laughs> it's a mistake at this age. Okay. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. So even though Abraham and Sarah have made these mistakes in trying to make God's promises come to life through Ishmael, God's grace is there. He says, I'm with Ishmael, I'll make him a great nation too. Even in this scenario where Abraham's trying to protect his life, by the way, he's not fully believing God's promises because his life is necessary for God's promises to be fulfilled. But he's, he's still scared, so he's trying to protect his life. And God says, no, I won't, I won't let you thwart the integrity of my promise. And he prevents Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah. And this, this by the way, this scenario is like me. I'm locking the door. I'm double-checking. I'm locking the door. I'm making sure I'm at peace. And yeah, I left the keys in the door. The integrity of my peace and my safety is totally at risk, right? That's exactly what Abraham was doing in this. Um, but God fulfills his promises. And in Genesis 21, verse 2, it says, And Sarah did conceive and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. This is the long-awaited son. And now God, Abraham sees how radically faithful God is to his promises. He made radical promises, right? Like he made promises for the impossible in the very difficult places. But he's radically faithful to them because this woman who is, at this point, really old, has a baby. And so they are overjoyed to have Isaac. And if you know the story, not long after this, God asks the worst thing from Abraham, right? He, he asks, he's testing him, and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me on an altar. Which, I'm not going to get into whether God really wanted that to happen or not, but he's testing him. And Abraham, at this point, his faith is secure. Because on his way to the mountain where he's supposed to do this with Isaac, he says, um, Isaac says, 
I think there's a slide for this one. Um, 22, verse 8. Abraham said, oh, Isaac said, well, we've got the wood and we've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. This God will provide for himself part. Like, that's it. He's, he's no longer trying to make the thing happen for God. At this point. He's saying, God will do this. I've seen him do it before, time and time again. Despite my effort, God will do this, right? And so they, they go up there, and God does. He's about to kill Isaac, and God just prevents him and says, No, don't do it. I don't want this to happen. But now I know that you're really with me, that you're really faithful to me as I'm faithful to you. And, and then he reiterates the promises again for the fifth time. But here is the thing. When you have seen God be radically faithful in your life in the past, it's like, it's like all this momentum for the next really hard thing. Because Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that even if he killed Isaac, God would bring him back from the grave. Mm-hmm. And why not? Because he had already seen God bring Isaac from a lifeless womb. Mm. And why couldn't he bring him back from death, right? So, how do we get from this place to the New Covenant? Um, What's really cool about this story is the foreshadowings of Jesus and the New Covenant through this. It was really clear in chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's Jesus that that is talking about. But in the middle of all these stories that we've just talked about, there's a really cool picture that happens in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham has just gone out and fought a big battle with like four kings. And God gave him the victory, and he won back his nephew Lot, who had been taken in the initial battles that all these other kings were fighting. So Abraham has gone out. He's rescued his nephew, who is about to be enslaved. And he meets this guy called King Melchizedek in chapter 14, verse um, 18 through 20. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, 18, 18 through 20. I, I had so many slides, and then I tore around. I'm not going to use half of them, so it got confused. I'll read it to you. Okay. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He met up with Abraham as after, after he defeated all these kings. King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and he said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Okay. <clears throat> so this King Melchizedek here. Um, it's, what we know from this part of the Bible is that he's a king and that he's a priest. And that he's blessing Abraham here. Okay? Hebrews chapter 2, no, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, says this about Melchizedek. It's comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. He's saying, in Hebrews it's saying, Jesus brings a better covenant. Jesus is a better priest. And it's comparing him to Melchizedek. And it says, um, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is peace. Okay, so Salem was translated to mean peace. So this guy, Melchizedek, his name means righteousness, and he's king over a place called peace. 
And by the way, that Salem becomes Jerusalem. Okay? And if you notice in this passage where this king of righteousness and peace, who is also a priest, meets Abraham, in this passage, what does he bring to eat? Bread and wine. Gosh. It's pointing to Jesus, okay? So it's in Jesus that we find righteousness and peace, okay? And in Genesis, um, when Abraham is, when he believes God, it says he believed God's promises and it was accredited to him as righteousness. His faith was equated to righteousness, okay? So faith is what, where our righteousness and our peace are rooted, okay? Isaiah chapter 32, sorry, verse... Um, 17 says this. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Okay? So when we believe in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness. That's how faith works. That's how the new covenant works. Jesus died for our sins. We believe in him. He gives us his righteousness because we can't be righteous in ourselves. And Isaiah tells us that the effect of this righteousness is peace. Isaiah also talks about Jesus and his coming in these famous verses that we like to read around Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So... It's saying Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's who this is talking about. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, his government as Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the peace. Okay? It's unlimited. And, and last week, one of our preachers was saying the kingdom is like expanding, essentially. It doesn't stop. It's, this peace is growing and growing and growing. Um, but sometimes we think, how, how do we enter this peace, right? Um, there's a lot of things going on in life that, that make it hard sometimes. Jesus, uh, the Prince of Peace, doesn't shy away from that, right? In John chapter uh, 16, verse 32, it says this. This is Jesus talking. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So he's saying, yeah, you are going to have trouble. And at the same time, you can have peace in me. Okay? He's not saying the trouble just goes away. We love this uh, Bible story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat and the huge storm because Jesus makes the storm go away. Right? <laughs> But what if he didn't? In fact, he rebukes his disciples in that scenario. He's like, why are you so afraid? You don't have enough faith. And part of that problem, I think, is because it's the purpose God has for their life that they're not believing. See, that is Abraham's problem, too. He was afraid that he was going to be killed for his wife's sake because he wasn't believing God's purpose for his own life that God had already promised and the same for these disciples in the boat when the storm's about to sink them, or so they think. They've lost sight of God's promises for their lives. And that's why I'm saying, where's your faith? Don't you believe what I told you? Right? About yourself. My promise, my purpose for you isn't yet fulfilled. You're not going to die here. 
So in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this. Then at, mm, that's all right. <laughs> Here it is. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This part about my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. I thought, what does that mean? But when we talk about peace here, we're talking about, okay, if governments aren't fighting, we have peace, right? Uh, the world can give us like this social form of peace, but what about relational peace? Can the world, can a government give us relational peace? Can it give us soul peace? No. And Jesus can do these things, but the world cannot. And he said, um, by the way, I'm leaving my peace with you, even though I'm leaving you. He's, he's talking about something we can find in him and also something that is a fruit of the Spirit. He leaves the Spirit with us, and Holy Spirit, one of his fruits is peace. And at the same time, we may not always feel it, right? It may be accessible, but we might not feel it. I've been in situations before where I was grieving, and people were like, the joy of the Lord is here even when you're in sorrow. And I'm like, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I am not feeling it. Nope. And, and that's a fact. Like, we cannot just command this to change, this feeling. Like, that's part of humanity. And I think Jesus acknowledges that in many places. In fact, when Jesus in the gar- is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and he's sweating drops of blood, there's something other than peace stirring in his soul. <laughs> right? So, this isn't a command to always be at peace. But it's a reminder that peace is always available. Um, this picture of peace as wholeness and knowing that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it's true. We find all of our wholeness in Jesus. But we are humans, and sometimes we try to find a way to peace outside of Jesus. I have a slide for this picture um, that's coming up. It's the Western Wall in Jerusalem. <clears throat> if you're around for our last series, we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah and how they rebuilt the temple. And um, this may not have been part of the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah built because there was an expansion of that temple. But in general, it was part of that same temple, this wall. It's all that's left in Jerusalem. And people go there, they call it the Wailing Wall, and people pray. And they write their prayers down on notes, and they stuff those little notes in the cracks of this wall. And I was reading this, um, or watching this video about masonry, and how if you have like a stone wall, it has like this stuff in between, I can't think of the name right now. Mortar, that's right. (laughs) Some person had tried to mortar a stone wall with cement. And what ended up happening was the cement doesn't breathe and it forced the water to come out the rocks and it destroyed the wall. And I feel like when I see this whaling wall, that that's kind of what we're doing when we try to make our own plans to peace or find our own way outside of God to being at peace in our soul. It's like, I'm going to patch this wall up with cement. I'm going to stuff my prayers in this wall, but the whole time I'm really going to be somewhere else, talking to somebody and loading my problems, going to the doctor looking for him, like, not that they don't have it, not that those things don't help, but like, that cannot be the place you go, right? Um, I watched a man be interviewed about this whaling wall, he was, he was Jewish, and the interviewer said to him, what do you personally pray for? 
He said, I pray for the redemption. That is the most important prayer. That the Holy One will redeem us from our troubles. That there will be peace in the world. And I thought, how sad. He doesn't even know. Mm. It already happened. Mm. And I felt real pity for him. How many times do we pity people who we are actually like? Mm. Like in what ways are we like that? Where we're looking for redemption and peace when it's already available. It's already there for us. And accessible. And so, I guess the question is, what is God saying to you? Um, Has he been speaking to you about places where you're trying to fulfill his promises or, you know, in your own way, outside of his plan? Is he just trying to encourage you that he is there in the waiting and he is radically faithful? 